Welcome to Ex Libris On Air and the stories behind the stories of today's literature and their authors. A presentation of Ex Libris Publishing, host Steve Jorgensen connects with the writer to share the vision and inspiration behind their works. Insightful, informative, and always entertaining, please welcome host Steve Jorgensen and this week's edition of Ex Libris On Air. The title of the book, God Theories, 2nd Edition, and the author is Ken Ungerecht, and Ken joins us now on Ex Libris On Air. Hello, Ken. Hi, Steve. How you doing? Well, this is going to be a refreshing, very refreshing view of the really the existence of God. You, you have come a long ways in, in your belief in that and your even uh, knowledge of that, and we'll get into those details of how you've changed. But, uh, but first of all, let me read to everyone what you've written about God theories. You say, God theories makes very careful use of sound scientific principles to prove far beyond any reasonable doubt several spiritually related ideas that have been argued about for centuries. At some point, the conclusions that are demonstrated in my book will have to become generally accepted, important, and fundamental principles of truth. Well, there, I mean, that's probably a, a good place to start, Ken, uh, just to make a comment before we find out more about you and your background, but truth, that is something that a lot of people don't want to recognize, that there is an absolute truth. No, I would agree with that. Yes, I believe that, you know, truth is something that either is or it is not. And uh, I think that we need to make an effort at trying to determine what is, you know. Yes, the fundamental truths. That, that has uh, obviously been debated for uh, probably since uh, the beginning of man. Tell us about your background, Ken, and the big change in your life and why you decided to write your book. Uh, okay, well, my background, I grew up uh, in uh, the sticks of northern Minnesota, a little farm up there, about 50 miles from Canada, and uh, went to college after I graduated from high school and became a science teacher. I did that in the public schools for a few years, and um, then I moved to Baltimore, which is where I'm at now, and I got involved in electronics, which is uh, something that uh, I find extremely fascinating, and... Um, uh, as far as, uh, you know, my beliefs, my spiritual beliefs, I think, you know, for a number of years, I would have considered myself to be an agnostic. I thought it was something that uh, couldn't be, you know, really proven or demonstrated one way or the other, and I was just pretty much, pretty much ready to let it go at that. But in my own mind, I just came to believe or came to conclude that, uh, you know, there, there are just things in our world that just could not be the way they are, if that were the truth, and so that uh, that realization on my part uh, just sort of led to what has become, I guess, the passion of my life, and that's to just try and understand that aspect of things uh, to the extent that I'm able to do. So that's what I've been kind of doing the last 40 years or so, I guess, or at least a big part of those 40 years, anyway. And so God theories has come out of your you're just wrestling with. Uh, what you've gone through, your experiences, and what you see now. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yep. Well, let's talk a little bit about this this struggle, this conflict between science and spirituality. Science and truth, let's say. There are truths on both sides of the equation. Why does science struggle so much? 
Well, I, I think there's probably a number of reasons, but I think the most fundamental reason for that is because science, as we know it today, and there are a lot of scientists that would even make this statement, that if something cannot be proven in the laboratory, you know, you get, if, if you can't come up with a double-blind experiment to prove something, then you can't believe it. And um, I think that that is a, uh, you know, is a problem, because... What happens then is you're forced to believe in absurdities. In other words, a lot, I think a lot of scientists, rather than believe in something that they can't prove with a double-blind experiment, uh, they just simply believe in absurdities. And uh, I, I think that is one of the problems. Now, certainly science, you know, has done amazing things in our world. They've come up with all kinds of wonderful gadgets, and you know, they, and they've learned a lot about truth. But I think that this is the one thing that is uh, making it difficult for them. Uh, when I say them, I mean the scientists that would adhere to that philosophy to, uh, you know, to accept anything at all uh, when it comes to spiritual beliefs. So again, if you can't prove it in the laboratory, then it must not exist. That is, you know, that is a, a fundamental belief of, of many scientists. I've even heard some very prominent ones basically make that statement, you know, on TV and other places. And uh, I just think that that's absurd. I, I just think believing in absurdities is kind of absurd itself. And uh, I, I, would, I would rather, you know, go a different route. Well, you make some uh, very bold statements that many, of course, in the scientific community would uh, take exception to, and uh, others who just, for whatever reason, don't believe in God or don't seem to think that, uh, you know, really God can be proven. But like, like this statement, for example, none of us could have possibly come into this world by chance or luck. Now, give us some more on that statement. Okay, well, that uh, goes to uh, an analysis of, you know, what we know about how we do come into this world. We know that, um, you know, physically at least, we start out as a, a combination of a sperm and an egg. Uh, so what is the, if, if, you know, our existence depends upon the creation of a particular physical body, that means that particular sperm and that particular egg that produced body we're in is the one that would have had to come together. And uh, the odds of that happening are so astronomically large as to be absurd. So how do you view the theory of evolution? That is often well, not, uh, it's not talked about as a theory at all. I mean, we don't, no. many times taught in the school, not a theory, but almost a fact. You're right. You're right. And I think you know I believe in in the in the theory up to a point, but there are there are aspects of it that just simply cannot be. And one of those is the idea that consciousness is something that came into being with the evolution of neural systems in animals, and, and that and that goes back to the same uh, mathematical uh, demonstration that I just talked about. It, it would be absurd. And um, and also the idea that consciousness is something that can only be generated uh, through biological and chemical activity in the brain. Now that's certainly one way that consciousness is produced, but it it 
It just simply cannot be the only way. And those are two ideas that are strongly, you know, a big part of evolution that are going to have to eventually be uh, abandoned. How do you view religion in all of this? Uh, how do, what role does religion play in this debate? Well, you know, I would not consider myself an adherent of any particular religion. I very much believe in what would be called the religious experience, which to me, you know, is, is a connection with our spiritual aspect, with God, with, you know, with whatever we view, and I think that's very real. So that experience is real, but I think that, you know, most religions also have, uh, you know, unyielding beliefs, and I think that a lot of those are going to have to be modified as well. You also say, let's see, what about the idea of the essence of who we are pre-existed? Now, explain that. Okay, well, um, again, to me... It's, it's beyond absurdity to think that the essence of who we are could possibly depend upon the creation of a particular physical body, and for, you know, some of the same reasons that I just mentioned. And, you know, and the math in that is not really that difficult, but that's, that's one of the things I get into in the book. So, but if, if the essence of who we are cannot possibly depend upon the creation of a particular physical body, that must mean that it exists independent of that body, which means that it had to exist prior to the development of any body that we might currently find ourselves in, and it must exist after as well. Your book reviews three generally accepted views of origin of life. We've heard these terms. You might want to make a comment. We've already talked a little bit about evolution. If you'd like to talk more about that, fine as well, but Creationism, intelligent design, and then, of course, evolution. Let's start with creationism. Well, um, creationism is, uh, you know, I'm talking about uh, the idea that a omnipotent uh, God that exists outside of our universe, uh, you know, created it. And that is kind of the generally accepted uh, view of uh many religions, certainly the Christian religion, and um, intelligent design is uh, an extension of that idea. However, intelligent design uh, makes use, really, in my view, of a lot of uh, good science to prove that there are certainly aspects of our universe that simply could not exist the way it does exist without, uh, you know, some intelligent guiding force. So, that, I mean, they, they, you know, I, I've read um, The Case for a Creator by Lee Strobel, and in that book he uh, puts forth a number of pretty, in my opinion, pretty sound mathematical and scientific demonstrations that this is true. Um, evolution, on the other hand, assumes that uh, everything just kind of started uh, at, at, at a very low level with, uh, you know, gases coming together to form atoms and molecules and eventually getting organic uh, molecules generated and eventually coming together to form simple life forms and so forth. Uh, so that theory assumes that that process happened without any, uh, any external 
or any other conscious involvement. And it, it just sort of happened because of the forces of nature. So those are those are the three the three theories. I, I think there's a certain element of truth in all of them, but I think that that um, that the big thing that evolution is missing is the inclusion of consciousness. I, I believe that consciousness had to exist uh, at the beginning. And and there and and they believe or evolution teaches that consciousness is something that came into being in conjunction with the evolution of neural systems in animals, and uh, that is it, it, it's a mathematically absurd idea. Yeah, the fact that somehow that leap was made between the what we see in animals and us. I mean, as humans. Or obviously, there's a huge difference, and somehow that just m magically happened. Right, Seems and there's a lot of mystery there, you know. And um, yeah. uh, and, and there, there, you know, but but you're right. It, it uh, there's mystery there, but there are some there are some aspects of it that just cannot possibly be, and and. Uh, two that I've mentioned there are, are big ones, in my opinion. Now, I, I think that the relationship that any of us develop with the divine is certainly going to be uh, personal, it's going to be unique, it's always going to involve mystery, and there's always going to be room for faith, and, there's a, and certainly I hope it always includes passion. But I just think that we, we need to start including a little more reason in that, uh, in that mixture of ingredients that we use to hold together our spiritual beliefs as well. Or we're, you know, we're going to have a hard time finding what is truth. And that, uh, that is what I think we're after. Anytime we get into a discussion of this sort, I think most of us have heard this term Big Bang Theory and probably don't know exactly how that fits into a discussion like this. How does that fit into a dis in a discussion like this? Well, uh, I think there's a lot of questions that are unanswered with regards to the Big Bang. I mean, if if we assume that there was such an event, and I'm not saying that there was or wasn't, um, most of most of what science puts forth is that everything since that uh, explosion or whatever it was has happened as a result of you know, natural laws, and everything is uh, predetermined as a result of that, and it happens in a cause-and-effect manner. And um, uh, certainly there are things that are, you know, happen in a cause-and-effect manner, but to say that everything happens like that is absurd, and my book, I, I, I will contend my book very conclusively proves that. Well, God certainly could have created and caused the Big Bang. He could have done that. Well, I think consciousness uh, at some level was involved, if, if that's what happened. Absolutely. You know, yeah. and, and if you want to call right. it God, I have, no problem. I have no problem with that. Right. And, uh, yeah. Yep. Well, fantastic discussion, Ken. Uh, his book, God Theories, second edition, Ken Ungerecht. Tell us, Ken, how to, how to get your book. How to get it? Well, you can go to uh, Amazon and uh, do a search for God Theories. Uh, it's available on Amazon. Uh, you can also go to GodTheories.com, which is the website which uh, introduces me a little bit and what some of my ideas are with regards to the book. And there's a, a click that you can make there to get uh, 
to buy the book as well. Well, thank you very much, Ken, for being with us on Ex Libris On Air. Okay, well, thank you, Steve, for, for allowing me to be there. Uh, this, is, this is a very great privilege, and I appreciate it. Ex Libris returns after these short messages. Hi everybody, this is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station. Why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear the latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix. Connect with Juliana and connect with what lies beneath. Friday afternoons at 4, 3 central on toginet.com. Juliana is a marriage, family, and child therapist who wants people to connect. Connect with what lies beneath, those truths and answers. And through her counseling practice, she has helped others find their personal power and fulfill their dreams. And she wants to do the same for you. Here on Connect with Juliana. Through intimate discussions, intriguing subject matters, and the expertise of her guests. For more on the show and Juliana, check out her webpage. Connect with Juliana in media.com. Juliana will cover it all. Nothing is off limits. She wants to know what matters to you. Make the connection. Tune in to TogiNet to connect with Juliana to find out the facts that could be hidden beneath the surface. Connect with Juliana on TogiNet to make a quality connection in your life. Friday afternoons at 4, 3 central on TogiNet.com. Back to Ex Libris with your host, Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, this children's book, You See the Unicorn. And the authors are Elaine, Chelva, and Robert Todd. And Elaine joins us now on Ex Libris On Air. Hello, Elaine. Hello, Mr. Jorgensen. Thank you so much for uh, interviewing me. Well, great to have you with it. At least call me Steve. <laughs> but, All right. Uh, interesting theme of this book, because it's not just a children's story. It also is a story with a very strong message about uh, the environment and the protection of animals. Uh, you write about your book in this way. You See the Unicorn is an adventurous story of a mythical creature. That's why we get it. I'll say that again. You See the Unicorn is an adventurous story of a mystical creature who leads his animal friends to a paradise away from the encroaching dangers of man and other animals. So obviously in the, wor- in the very real world, animals, because of man's search for this or that and wanting to expand and, and encroach on his natural environment, uh, this this kind of opens up that kind of thinking for the child. 
Well, you see, in terms of the title, is also the imaginative idea that a person, it's a play on words that you really see a unicorn in your imagination. And he is going to lead the animal to a safe refuge. And at the same time, he's trying to teach a lesson to our children and adults about what happens to the environment when it's decimated or when the animals are not protected and you witness illegal poaching of various animals, particularly the elephant for its tusks, or you may slay animals or use them for medical experimentation, which ultimately will lead to an endangerment and possible extinction of the animals. So how did you choose the unicorn? Well, we chose the unicorn because it is unique, and it is an animal that helps the forlorn in history. Uh, his presence is also uh, mythical, but some people say that you can read about the unicorn in the Bible. Everyone is searching for this animal. So not typical of having a lion lead the pack or any other animal taking charge. We surmised, we guessed, and we decided that the unicorn might be a strong steed, a strong figure, mythical, that would come and help lead the animals to safety. And ultimately, maybe, would return again. But basically, based on the person being able to believe in a unicorn, it would be believable also that maybe we may safeguard our environment for future generations. So you see, sounds the warning that man, the animal man, is approaching them, he's cutting down the trees, and they're going to have to, uh, they're going to lose their home. That's correct. And yet, at the same time, with people today looking to safeguard the habitat and protect our animals, we're looking for areas and spaces where we can help these animals maybe reproduce. We have captive breeding, or we might have some kind of animal farms where we could bring forth these animals and people them from becoming extinct. Well, the illustrations are very, very real. They're, they look authentic. Yes, and that was something I think that will capture the readers. Uh, it beckons the reader to view the animals, and the illustrations of them are so realistic. Uh, you have them resting at times running. You also have uh, the disturbance of the ground as they're kicking up the dirt as they're fleeing. Uh, you have them resting and you also have them at a various water hole. And at the same time, you're, you're looking at the jungle aspect of the floral arrangements. So you have the foliage, trees, and you have birds and everything that would make it possible for a child to really see it as nature is. 
How did you choose on the animals you wanted for characters in the book? Well, as a family, we had gone to East Africa in the 1970s, and when we were there, we knew we were in a, we went on a safari. So we began to look at the, the areas, and we saw various animals. We saw gazelles, elephants, giraffes, etc. And so we began to pick what animals that we would really want to be in a jungle setting. Now, every now and then, you might not have a skunk, but the skunk was important to the story <laughs> and for the facial expressions of uh, the animals that captures that in waking them up. And at the same time, we looked at um, how the animals would be in full flight as they're running and what they would look like as they rested and yet what they would be like those in the trees. So on our safari and on our traveling to the reserves in Zach, many of these animals were the ones that we saw during our time there. The only thing animal that was there was the orangutan. So that had more of an Asian influence. Of course we knows we know what happens when skunks aren't happy. Yes. Yes, and and I and I like the idea of using the word "tu" and giving the, giving the reader, uh, if it's read aloud, it gives you a good type of sound for young people. Uh, aspects of parents being able to make sounds and young children able to mimic the same sounds at the same time. And there's a poetic kind of uh, feature to the book uh, that obviously always draws children and, and, and adults as well. Yes, because the poetic prose uh, comes from all of us in the family. Each writes and loves the sounds of words. And coupled with the illustration, it will make the adults and children love the rhythmical the nuances of the sound and the harmony and the music that one could envision, particularly when the animals are singing. And yet everything is a, in poetry and prose. And that is somewhat difficult to do sometimes, to, to complete the prose and the, and the poem or po the poetic aspect, aspect of it at the same time. And like all mystical creatures, once he has finished his mission, UC disappears. That's correct. UC disappears, but we leave an opening that in one's imagination, maybe he'll come back and maybe it'll make for a good sequel in his return and maybe he'll have another um, focus rather than just taking the animals to a paradise. But this story, not just in bringing him back uh, for the future, we look at what he did in this story. He was a mentor, leadership. He passed his mantle on to another animal. He tried to prevent the animals from bullying one another and learning how to cooperate and bringing peace and harmony so that everyone lives successfully. Uh, has his own self-worth. 
So even though these are animals, we're trying to, at the same time, imagine that this is a world of people trying to get along with diversity, self-image, love of one another, cooperation and peace in a beautiful environment that we rescue and at the same time preserve it for a future generation. Elaine, tell us how to get your book, You See the Unicorn. Okay, we have a website, which is www.youseetheunicorn.com. It's also available at Ex Libris, and one can purchase it as an e-book, and it's that, and maybe purchased through Amazon.com, and it's located at Barnes & Noble's also. Well, thank you so much, Elaine, for being with us, representing Chelva and Robert Todd as well. Thank you for being with us on Ex Libris On Air. Thank you, Steve, so much. I appreciate it. Ex Libris returns after these short messages. Join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu, Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. Helen Wu was born and raised in San Francisco's Chinatown, and after a very difficult upbringing, fighting depression, abuse, and addictions, she finally finds herself genuinely happy inside and out. Helen believes in taking our positive thinking and doing something positive to achieve a positive outcome. She's here to make a positive difference in your life, to be your game changer, your aha moment mentor. She's ready to help both men and women get into a better place. Helen Wu is also the author of Self-Aid Success Stories, 25 Success Stories from Successful Entrepreneurs. Inspired by Ellen DeGeneres, Helen wants the world to know that just because we find ourselves in a difficult situation doesn't mean we have to stay there. We can aid ourselves to a better life. So join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu. Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. Welcome back to Ex Libris with your host, Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, A Right to Bear Arms. What were the founders thinking? Gerald Peterson is the author, and Gerald joins us now on Ex Libris On Air. Hello, Gerald. Hello. uh, Thank you for having me. Great to have you with us. Such a timely book with all the Lots of in, lots in the news about the Second Amendment recently, uh, and that probably is not going to let up. You say this is uh, this book is an inquiry into the historical derivation and meaning of the Second Amendment, and of yeah. course, you know, there's a lot of pre preconceived notions out there from pro gun, anti gun, but uh, what was the genesis? What was the impetus to write this book? Uh, basically, uh, two reasons. Uh, one is my interest in American history, uh, especially the founding era as it relates to the Constitution. But in, in uh, regarding the Second Amendment directly, um, I had many questions. So many people interpret the Second Amendment one way, but when I read it, it seems to read something else. So I wonder... Why was the Second Amendment written the way it was? Uh, that started me going. And then it, just one question led to another. 
what role did the states play in developing the Second Amendment? And then all of a sudden you see, ooh, I think the Second Amendment is more about the states than the individual people. Mm-hmm. Uh, then you have the matter of natural rights and how the, uh, some pro-gun people say guns are needed to protect our natural rights. Uh, John Locke uh, referred to natural rights as life, liberty, and property. Thomas Jefferson threw in the pursuit of happiness. Uh, other people, and I suggest the possibility that firearms can endanger our natural rights. Um uh, then I got into the idea of raising the question, well, what responsibilities do the, does the government have and what responsibilities do the people have in protecting and preserving our natural rights? Uh, and there's a long way you can go into that. Uh, uh, and then I got into the question about the Supreme Court. Uh, did their decisions change over the years and how did they change? And uh, the answer, very simply, is they did change. The, the two most recent uh, decisions by the Supreme Court are a total 180-degree turnaround from earlier decisions. Uh, so answering these questions was really my motivation for uh, writing this book. And uh, the answers that I found uh, seemed to be contrary to a lot of the current thinking about the amendment. Well, that goes back to most people today don't understand original intent, and that's what you have found, I guess, original intent of the founders. Absolutely, absolutely. You had fears galore of that uh, time period uh, of uh, standing armies. Uh, The people felt that uh, any government, no matter how noble it may have been in the beginning, if it had a standing army, especially in peacetime, it would lead to tyranny. So your states would have militias uh, to be the first line of defense. That way the national government would not have to have a standing army. Uh, But in order for the state to maintain a militia, its people had to be able to bear arms in order to be members of those militias. So here is the connection between militias the right to bear arms, uh, protection of the states. Uh, the other fear uh, of the time was that uh, uh, a too powerful government could wipe out state sovereignty. Um, after all, the framers put into the uh, uh, Constitution the power of Congress to call up the militias to national service. Uh, and to regulate uh, certain uh, operations and, and, and maintenances of the militias. Uh, and you couple that along with the power given to the, the government of raising an army, uh, the power to tax, and all of a sudden your anti-federalists are thinking, hey, this government could be way too powerful and we could see the disappearance of our states. So they wanted a militia They wanted the people of each state to have the right to bear arms so that they could, uh, one, provide the first line of defense, and two, to provide protection against a too powerful government. Well, we can see their uh, concern and their anxiety because today we have a very, very big and strong and overpowering federal government, which is trying to 
tell the states what to do. So it's very clear of what the founders had in mind, but most people don't understand that first phrase, and that's what you're talking about, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, comma, the right to bear arms shall not be infringed. We all know about that right to bear arms shall not be infringed, but that first part, most people, 95% of the people probably don't know what that phrase means. No, I don't think they do. They don't know the connection. Uh, they don't know the history. Uh, and these are things that they need to learn. Uh, it, it's sad to me that the people have turned away from our founding era principles, uh, our history and our heritage. They, they go by ideology today more than anything else. Right, and it's so important to know history, and especially in our case, to know the Constitution and the context in which it was formed and the Bill of Rights in which it was formed. It, it all makes much more sense then, and that's what your yes. book is helping us to do. Absolutely. I hope so. Right. So as you see this big debate over guns and society, uh, how would you approach this issue of firearms? Oh, Boy, I, I, you're walking a tightrope over the Grand Canyon, basically. Uh, one thing I do not mention in my book, you will not find it in my book, and that's two words, gun control. All you have to do is say those two words, and you've got people's hackles raised. Uh, they're ready to go to battle. I, I, I want to talk about the history of firearms in our society, uh, public safety, the concept uh, of the government's responsibility to protect the people. Now, here's a whole thing going back, uh, and I try to make these points in, in my book. Uh, we go back to John Locke. He was a 17th century political philosopher. He wrote about the state of nature, which is a, a condition with no government. Uh, he wrote of natural laws and natural rights. Again, those natural rights of life, liberty, and property. Uh, unlimited liberty, but that also meant for good or bad. In a state of nature, there is no governing authority. So there's no higher authority to adjudicate differences. There's no governing authority that protects the people. So it's constant danger. Uh, first priority in the state of nature is self-preservation. Unlimited self-preservation. No one's there to protect you, so you do whatever you need to do to protect yourself. So... People move in to a society, uh, a societal compact, where the government now will protect the people. They will give up a little bit of that unlimited liberty. The government takes over the responsibility for protecting the people. And now self-preservation is a little bit more limited. Uh, now, and, and, and another uh, a major name from uh, that period of time, uh, uh, William Blackstone, who was an English uh, legal uh, writer and expert, uh, wrote of the limitations on self-defense. Uh, he pointed out that now, in a societal compact, the first thing you do if you perceive danger is you go to the government and, and seek their protection. 
If they're not there, the next thing you do is try to avoid that danger. If that doesn't work, then you fall back on self-defense, but only to the degree of the perceived danger. So it's a much more limited concept than in a state of nature. And if you if you look at today and certain states uh, that have the stand your ground uh, uh, laws, those are totally out of sync with the people's understanding of self-defense back in our founding era. It just it just doesn't they don't equate at all. Uh, so uh, these are other things we have to understand where where we're going today. Uh, uh, it's so out of sync with our right. founding era. Well, and it's difficult to understand unless you really dig into the history. That's why books like yours are so important, because when you hear that phrase gun control, that, of course, is just a powder keg today. But back then, mm-hmm. as I understand in my studying that era, is that gun control meant everybody had a gun and you had to have a gun. It was required that you had a gun. Well, yes and no. Um, and you look at the most communities at that in that time had uh, rules and regulations against discharging a firearm within the city limits. Where you needed a gun was on the frontier. People who were moving into the frontier or living by the frontier. They were away from that government protection. So absolutely, they had to have firearms. Absolutely. Uh, there, there was just no doubt about it until the government would catch up to them. Then you come into a more controlled situation. Uh, what was happening also uh, leading up to the American Revolution, of course, there were all kinds of problems with the uh, British government. Uh, who had a massive number of troops uh, in the colonies. Uh, originally, they were there to protect the colonies. But after uh, all kinds of problems, we, of course, had the Boston Massacre. We had uh, tax revolts. We had all kinds of things going on. The British troops suddenly became occupiers. They were no longer there to protect the people. And when the First Continental Congress met, uh, they were getting their rules together. Patrick Henry made a speech, and part of his speech, he said, we are now in a state of nature. Bingo. There you are. That set the tone for the whole American Revolution. Now the people were gathering up guns to become members of those militias to stand up against the British they were not being protected anymore by the British Army. Uh, they were, in, a, in effect, endangered by the British Army. Now you have the growth of your militias and the people bearing arms to uh, be a part of those militias. Well, it's a fascinating history. It obviously applies to us directly today, and there's a huge debate over gun control. There's such a difference of opinion uh, from right to left on that. So do you have any view of this, of where this is going, where this is going to end up with all your research? 
I, I, I am very worried because with people I, I have talked, well, I have talked with, uh, uh, police officers and they just cannot understand this big proliferation of firearms in, in our society at all. They, they don't go along with that at all. But as long as people are following ideology rather than trying to understand what the Second Amendment was all about, uh, I, I, I just see more and more firearms in, uh, in society, and I see more gun violence as a part of it. We've got to start thinking in, in terms of the responsibility of government to protect the people and the responsibility of the people to support the government in this endeavor. Uh, when you look at the two most recent cases uh, of the Supreme Court, Heller and McDonald, it's almost like they took away some of the ability of municipalities and states to protect the people in those decisions. Uh, so I'm, I'm quite worried about the direction we're going. Uh, uh, I would hope that people would read my book and say, oh, wait a minute, maybe we're getting a little out of control here as far as firearms. Uh, you know, maybe there's a, re uh, a legitimate place for firearms here and there, but not to the extent that uh, we seem to be pushing it today. We've been listening to Gerald Peterson. He's the author of his book, A Right to Bear Arms. What were the founders thinking? Gerald, tell us how to get your book. Uh, you can get it online at uh, www.barnesandnoble.com. Uh, you can get it at www.amazon.com. Well, thank you so much, Gerald, for being with us on Ex Libris On Air. Thank you for having me. Join Steve Jorgensen next week at the same time as he explores the passion and the inspiration behind the works of today's authors. Right here on Ex Libris On Air.